Uh, So again, that's Acts 14, verses 1 through 28. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, sang in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Troll. Grateful for your pastoral prayer this morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm Sully, and it's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you. I hope you keep your Bibles open in front of you. I want to have the text in front of us as we look at our passage together. As we get started, let me ask you a question. How has this pandemic shaped you? It's kind of been a question I've enjoyed asking people, processing together. I know for me, this pandemic has has changed a lot about me. 
Uh, one small thing is I notice that I have this new and deeper appreciation for simple good news. I was on a phone with, with Pastor John probably a week or so ago, and he was giving me an update of a number of things, uh, most of which were, were heavy or hard things, but he came across one you know, bit of good news from a meeting he had earlier in the day, and I, I, I just stopped him and I paused him and said, hey, I just want to stay there for a minute longer and linger in that good news for a bit. It's things like that that actually fortify us, help us to keep going during difficult times. Maybe it's a, a hug from a child after a hard day of parenting, or maybe it's a sense of accomplishment when you get something done at work. It's moments like that that really keep us pressing on during difficult times. This past week, as Joel just prayed, a verdict in the killing of George Floyd was announced. A verdict of guilty three times over was announced. It was a moment of justice that is far too rare. And for those who labor for justice, who labor for healing, for accountability, for reform, it was a moment that I'm sure will, will strengthen us for the days ahead. Life can sometimes feel like a series of mountaintops and then deep valleys. We reach that mountaintop and it's just the fresh air and the, the view just helps us to keep going. And then there's days where we're down in the deep valley and we're unsure of what our next step should be. And it's in those days that, that we need help to keep going. Today in our text, the Apostle Paul is an example of someone who knew how to walk through tribulation well. He was someone who knew how to walk through when opposition came against him. In the text that we just read a few moments ago, in the city of Lystra, he was beaten, he was stoned so badly that people thought he was dead. And yet, he got back up and kept going. What was going through his mind when he was battling to stay conscious, to, to stay uh, aware of what was going on? I, that's really the question I want to wrestle with today. What is it that keeps disciples of Jesus going through tribulations? I hope, Holy Trinity Church, that we are in the last days of this pandemic, the last days of this trial. But if we're honest with each other and we listen to the word of God, we know that if there is breath in our lungs, there are more trials to be seen. And so I hope today as we look at our text that we might be fortified to fight another day and to keep going together. So before we open up the, the text again, I want to ask the Lord for his help. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we live in a world where words are cheap and it causes us to disregard and devalue your words. Show us today how much more superior and perfect and good and true is your word. Give us a humility, O Lord, to learn and give us a calm heart and mind to engage with the truth of your word today. Make clear for us your good purposes and give us faith to respond in obedience. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so three things today that help Christians press on in hard times. This part of Acts that we're reading and that we're looking at kind of reads like a travel journal. It, Luke, the author of Acts, recounts for us three missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul went on. And we just read the last phase of Paul's first missionary journey. And there was a lot of cities that were mentioned, a little bit of geography. It might have been a little confusing. But really, the geography of our text today helps us give a little bit of structure to what we just read. So today, there's three main cities that were mentioned, and that's how we're going to look at the text. 
We're going to look at Paul in Iconium and then in Lystra and then Derbe. Those are the three cities. So, verse 1. Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in the city of Iconium. And they head to the synagogue. This is a part of their missionary strategy to go to the place where they might find a few people who had a predisposition to wanting to hear about the gospel, to hear about Jesus. People who had an understanding of the Old Testament, who had that context. And what we read is that they arrived and they began to teach, and not just a few people, but a great number of people came to faith. It was probably one of those mountaintop experiences that, that it got them excited to keep going. Yet it didn't last very long. Quickly, we are told that some of the unbelieving Jews in the area stirred up the crowd and poisoned the mind of the people against Paul and Barnabas. How do you poison someone's mind about someone else? You, you tell lies. You malign them. Even if, the, even if what you say is untrue, it still causes people to not really want to associate with that person. Paul's no stranger to opposition. You may remember that he used to be the opposition. He was the guy who oversaw the stoning of Stephen in Acts. Yet he became a believer and was sent out as a missionary to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he quickly found himself on the other side, facing opposition. Last week, we saw Paul in Antioch, and he saw so much opposition there that he was forced out of the city. And he finds himself now in Iconium, and, and here he finds opposition again. Yet it seems as if, though, the opposition he's facing caused him to stay in the city even longer. Look back at the text with me. Look at verse 3. This is what we read. It says, So they, that is Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Even in the face of opposition, Paul stood his ground and he spoke boldly. The context that he was preaching in was a divided context. I think we probably know a thing or two about living in a context that is divided. Yet Paul here, he presses on, he keeps preaching. I believe for Paul, it is his confidence in the gospel message that allowed him to keep persevering, to keep going. He didn't compromise his message, even though he was facing opposition. What kept Paul going was this sense of courage that he got from knowing that he stood in the truth. That truth, what is right and good, was on his side, that knowing that, he could keep going and keep preaching. You see, I don't think that courageous acts like what Paul did here make what he preached good news. Rather, it's the other way around. Good news makes courageous people. This is what I'm trying to say is that when we know that we have the truth, we can speak boldly like Paul. Think about those who fought in World War II who did incredible acts of bravery. They had the message of liberation to those in cities in Europe and in concentration camps. Their act of courage and bravery came from knowing that they were on the side, on the side of truth and there to proclaim liberation. I think that you and I, there's a lot of differences between us and Paul in his context and our context. Yet we can partake in the same boldness as Paul because we share in the same good gospel that he proclaimed. I think about how many revolutionaries throughout history have stood up to incredible powers, powers far greater than them. 
And yet they were able to do this knowing that they were on the side of what was right and good and true. Howard Zinn, the, the great historian, has actually said that he says, I suppose the most revolutionary act one can engage in is to tell the truth. Holy Trinity Church, I believe what we can learn from the Apostle Paul is that what can help us through difficult times, what can cause us to persevere when we face opposition, is confidence that we have in knowing that the gospel is true. I hope you and I will, in the days ahead, won't compromise the gospel because we know that it is true and it is what is right. But I think there's a second thing we can learn here from Paul about what it takes to keep pressing on. Here is the last days of his first missionary journey and what causes him to press on, what motivates him is his confidence in the, the truthfulness of the gospel. But secondly, I believe it is this conviction he has for clarity. Let's look at where he goes next to the second city in our passage. It's not Chicago. It's a city that is east of Iconium called Lystra. And in Lystra, he does something different than what he did in Iconium. He doesn't head to a synagogue. It most likely wasn't a big enough city to have a synagogue or a large enough Jewish population. But what we are told is that Paul and Barnabas come across a gentleman who was lame, who could not walk. And yet seeing that he had faith, he told him to rise up, to, to walk. And he didn't just stand up. We're told he sprang up and began to walk. It was miracles and signs and wonders like this that often accompanied the, the preaching of the apostles to confirm the truthfulness of what they said. Yet something went wrong here. There was a, a grave misunderstanding. The crowd in their native language began to worship, but not worship God. They began to worship Paul and Barnabas. They were most likely polytheists, thinking they had multiple gods, and here was someone to doing an act, a miracle that no one else they'd ever seen perform before, and so they just assumed this must be another god. The priest of Zeus comes out, offering oxen and garland, began to worship, and I'm sure for Paul and Barnabas, not knowing the native language, was probably a little confused for a while about what was going on. And yet for them, they probably realized pretty quickly that something was misunderstood. For Paul and Barnabas, as they realize this, they are grieved. They have such anguish that they tear their garments. Look, I want to read here verse 14. Look at how they respond to the city here as they worship them. It says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. I, I hate being misunderstood. This pandemic has multiplied the opportunities to be misunderstood. The number of texts and emails that we're sending each other, our tone isn't able to come across, and there's so many opportunities for us to be misunderstood. And I hate that. I usually immediately want to pick up the phone or go, go to the person and try to clear the air quickly. But if I'm honest, there are some times when I'm okay with misunderstandings. For example, if someone thinks that I'm better than I really am, I'm okay with that misunderstanding. 
I'm okay with people often thinking more highly than they ought to of me. Yet this is so dangerous, especially dangerous in the church when pastors are thought more highly of themselves than they should. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't let their pride get in the way. They immediately begin to respond to try to clear up the air. They immediately yell out to the crowd, stop what you're doing. We're, we're just men like you. There's nothing better about us than, than you. They begin to preach the gospel to them. They say we've come with good news about the living God. And I love that Luke records the sermon that Paul preached here. It's a different sermon than we saw him preach in Iconium or in, back in Antioch. He realizes his crowd that he's preaching to doesn't have the background of the law and the prophets. And so he looks around and he sees the beauty of the sea and the skies and the earth. And he says, we've come to call you to, to turn away from idols and to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. And this is the God who has borne witness to who he is to you throughout time. He's the God who has provided you the rains for the harvest, who has filled you with gladness. This God we call you to worship. What I want us to hear this morning is that Paul's unbending commitment to the gospel clarity does not, does not lead to a wooden or stale presentation of the gospel. Paul preaches because he has this conviction for clarity. It leads him to preach with a creative and compelling and passionate message. Holy Trinity Church, I, I hope that what will motivate us in the coming days through trials is this conviction for clarity. But our conviction for clarity, I pray, is not a conviction that leads us to being staunchy or stale, but actually passionately sharing the gospel creatively and faithfully to all around us. Yet this clarity can often come at a cost, and that's the case for Paul. Quickly, things change. He goes from being worshipped to being stoned. We're told that some of Paul's haters from Iconium and back in Antioch caught up with him, chased him down, and stirred up the crowd against him, and they began to stone him. The stones flying through the air, breaking his bones, beginning to cause him to bleed, so much so that he loses consciousness, and the, the people thought he was dead. They drug him out of the city, leaving him just to be left there. Yet miraculously, he comes around and the disciples gather around him and he somehow gets up and goes back into the city and then presses on to the next city to preach the gospel. For Paul, I think he is an example of someone who, who knew that he could have confidence from knowing the gospel. He was someone who had his conviction for clarity and would hold to the gospel truth no matter the cost. And yet sometimes truth does not lead us down the easiest path. Wide and easy is the path of compromise and lies, but its destination is eternal separation from God. Narrow and hard is the path of truth, but it leads to the kingdom of God. And I hope that you and I will find that path, that our conviction for the truth will press us on. I just want to, one, before moving on, I want to press in on this for just one more moment to call us to understand the urgency for Christians to have a conviction for clarity. Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, shows us one way that Christians who lack a conviction for clarity can often find themselves causing great harm and becoming complicit 
in lies of racism. He makes this difference between, he separates the complicit Christianity and courageous Christianity. He says that uh, complicit Christianity, it forfeits its moral authority by devaluing the image of God in people of color. By contrast, courageous Christianity, it embraces racial and ethnic diversity. It stands against any person, policy, or practice that would dim the glory of God reflected in the life of human beings from every tribe and tongue. His book is a call to abandon complicit Christianity and take hold of courageous Christianity. It's a a call to grab hold of a conviction for clarity no matter what. So Holy Trinity Church, I What I mean by us, what it looks like for us to have a conviction for clarity means we will stand up for the gospel no matter the cost. We will stand for what is true and right and beautiful in this world. Paul, beaten and bruised, near death experience, and yet it does not stop him. His conviction for clarity, his confidence in the gospel. But there's one final thing I want to show you today about what was a motivating factor for him to finish this missionary journey. And it's his, his commitment to the local church. Here in the text, we're told that he leaves uh, Lystra and he moves on to a third city, Derby. And a quick geography lesson. If you have a Bible that has maps in the back, you can go and look at this. But where he was at in the city of Derby, he would have just needed to have traveled a bit east to head back to the city of Antioch, where he began the missionary journey and where he was ultimately heading to. But instead of just going that short distance, he decides to retrace his steps, to go all the way back through the many cities he preached in, and then go back to the city of Antioch in Syria. In order to revisit all of these cities, he was there to actually set up elders and to establish churches in all of these cities. Look at what he did when he went back through all these cities. Verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby." And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom uh, they had believed. The rest of the chapter just retraces their final journey back to the city of Antioch, the church that sent them out. Once they arrive back in Antioch, they are cared for and they share about how the gospel opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It is probably a great celebration. Two observations I want to share with you at the end of our text today about Paul's commitment to the local church. Even though he had been maligned and stoned, he pressed on to retrace his steps, to strengthen the disciples, to establish elders. He had this commitment to the local church because he knew that these young believers needed a community of believers. He needed a church. They needed a church to belong to, to be shepherded, to be cared for, in order to finish the race of faith. It's a kind of a, maybe a goofy illustration, but I think it was uh, David Attenborough, the planet Earth, that taught me about emperor penguins down down in Antarctica and how they, in order to survive the cold winters, huddle together, and they, they stay together so that the outside penguins actually block the wind and the, the, the snow, and then they shift so that they all can stay warm throughout the cold winter. I can't help but think about how Paul understood that for Christians, the church isn't a luxury. It is a lifeline. To be a community together is what is needed to withstand the trials of life. 
Like, to switch metaphors for a moment, it's like a tree that needs to be rooted deep into the ground, into the dirt and rock, in order to withstand hurricane winds. So it is with believers. We must be rooted in the church to be able to withstand tribulations. You see, Holy Trinity Church, I understand that this last year has caused us to maybe disrupt our rhythms of being, gathering together for community group for Sundays. Yet this is a moment to recommit ourselves to one another. And I'm not just calling you to, to recommit to showing up and being present. I mean entangle your life with one another. That's what's needed in order to stand, withstand the tribulations that lie ahead for us. Paul had this commitment to the local church. It drove him to go back to these cities and to establish the church there. But secondly, he has this commitment to get back to the city of Antioch, the church that originally commissioned him, that sent him out. He knew Paul and Barnabas went out on this missionary journey knowing that the people back in Antioch would hold the line, would be praying for them, supporting them. And they come back and they tell the great news of what had happened. And it says in the last verse of our text that they remained there no little time. I believe that Paul and Barnabas, they weren't just uh, rogue missionaries, unattached from any local community. They were actually very much so rooted in a local church. Here at Holy Trinity Church, this passage has actually helped shape our missions paradigm. Uh, you might have heard us talk about it, but there's actually two arms to our missions paradigm. We believe and we have already sent out some from among us to cross cultural and ethno-linguistic lines. And I pray that there would be even some in this room today who might feel the call of the Lord to go and preach the, gospels to, to the gospel to nations that have not heard the gospel before. Yet there's a second arm to our missions paradigm that partners with local indigenous leaders, churches that, that actually are raising up church planters to multiply the work that they are doing. Both arms of our missions paradigm have this commitment to the local church. We believe that this is, this is a biblical New Testament pattern, a pattern given to us by the Apostle Paul. So, followers of Jesus, not just missionaries, need a confidence in the gospel, a conviction for clarity, a commitment to the local church. As Paul says very clearly as he went back to visit all of these churches, that it is through many tribulations we must pass to enter the kingdom of, of God. I hope, Holy Trinity Church, that we might follow in the footsteps of Paul. But Paul was following the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the same things that motivated Paul to finish his missionary journey were the same motivating factors for our Lord Jesus, as he finished his journey to the cross. I believe what sustained Jesus was his, was his unwavering knowledge of the truthfulness of God's plan and will. I believe it was this motivating factor, his conviction for truth, that knowing that the cross itself would be the greatest display of his identity, of who he was, that drove him to finish his journey to the cross. I believe it was from beginning to end his love for the church that motivated Jesus. It wasn't a cool and calculated decision. It was a movement of affection for the church that drove Jesus. So let me finish with this. To anyone this morning who needs greater confidence in the gospel, let me ask you to look to the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no greater sign, no greater wonder that ever could be performed to assure us of the truthfulness of the gospel. To the person this morning who needs a greater conviction for the truth, again, look to the cross. 
See what's at stake. It's a life and death matter. But thirdly, for the person who needs, needs to have their heart kindled again for a love for the church, look to Christ. Look to what he did that makes the church lovely. It is nothing about this group of people in this room today is really all that lovely, but it is what Christ has done to make the church beautiful that should draw our hearts towards it, to motivate us to entangle our lives in the life of the church. As Paul has said again, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. Yes, our confidence in the gospel, our conviction for the truth, our commitment to the local church will help us navigate those hard days. But I want you to hear this morning that above all of these things, what will help us is the knowledge that it is our Lord who will hold us fast. In a few moments, we're going to hear this song sung that we have sung many times at Holy Trinity. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, when it feels as if the devil and all of his companions are pressing in upon us, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Holy Trinity Church, today as we hear this song sung in just a few moments, may we have a new resolve to press on, to be fortified, to fight another day, knowing that our Lord Jesus has accomplished the conquering of death, who has gone before us, and who will see us through. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, we come before you again giving you thanks and rejoicing in the gospel to be entrusted with such a great message, Lord. I pray today that you will strengthen us for the days ahead. Father, I pray that through our life we would completely and wholly trust in our Lord Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.